Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenore Walters, and joining me today are Darius McDermott, Managing Director of Chelsea Financial Services, and Mary McDougall, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle. Markets have generally been turbulent over the past couple of months, but a particular feature of the past few weeks has been volatile oil prices, with, for example, at one point, the WTI crude oil price plunging into negative territory. You might not think that volatile oil prices are an issue if you don't invest in oil funds or shares, but in fact, they have far-reaching implications for a number of investments. Darius, why does oil price volatility affect far more than just energy funds and shares? Hi, Leonora. Yeah, I mean, the oil companies, particularly on the UK stock market, are really, uh, they're very big companies. And anybody who holds um, investments in an index tracker or, or, or many funds, uh, for that matter, will have exposure to those oil companies. The other thing is, of course, until recently, they were big, big parts of the UK dividend that is paid. And lots of people will have holdings in Shell or BP on a UK basis if they hold a, an income fund or are looking for, for, for yield because they have been such a big part historically of the UK dividend. So with them being such big weightings in the UK index, the movement of that index up or down on a daily basis will in part be due to those to those shares. Okay, I suppose well on that note then, I mean, how at risk are UK funds, in particular equity income funds? The current situation with the virus and the changes that we're all currently living through has had a, a big impact on companies' ability to pay dividends. So certain parts of the market, for instance, the banks, have been forbidden for paying dividends by the government. The government have also put a lot of pressure on insurance companies and other parts of the market to not pay dividends, to keep that money in reserve, if you like, to help boost the economy or to help bail out troubled companies. The dividend is hugely important. And then your question really about income funds. Well, income funds invest for yield. They buy companies where dividends are being paid. So you're seeing, I would say, increased risk, but you're seeing a change to their profile because lots of their underlying companies will not pay a dividend or are delaying dividends for the next six, 12 months. So I wouldn't say they've got become more risky per se, but their profile has changed from primarily investing in companies for yield to holding companies that, that, that are for varying reasons, but all COVID-linked are no longer able to pay dividends in the short term. Okay. I mean, as a result, should investors avoid UK equity income funds? Uh, again, it depends on your need. UK income funds have long since been the core of UK retail fund buyers' portfolios. You know, good, sensible managed companies. You know, when you pay a dividend out, it's actually part of your capital allocation as a company. And it's always deemed to be good corporate governance to pay a dividend to the shareholders that have supported you and stuck with you. So I think there is a bit of a change in the short term. Uh, but you know, should you stick with an income fund, I suppose as much of that is on an individual circumstances is how much yield do they need? 
And you know, the UK market at one stage was yielding nearly five percent. But actually, when you factor in forty to fifty percent of cuts in that in the UK stock market, it's probably yielding nearly two, two and a half. So I wouldn't abandon it an equity income fund per se. But if you have a yield requirement from your portfolio, then it may well be that an alteration and you know, some, a saying which I got from a bond fund manager recently, so I'm not going to claim original thought, but dividends are not contractual. That is up to the management and in some instances the government. But interest payable to bondholders is actually contractual. So if you're a bond investor, and your companies don't default, they go bust, they are contractually obligated to pay you your your coupon. So, um, you know, until dividends recover on equities, it may well be a move into other income sources is, um, is more appropriate. But that, again, does depend on an individual by individual basis. Okay. I mean, um, let me pick up on bonds because um, you highlighted that area. Um, You know, what are the implications of this situation? In particular, oil price falls for bonds and the funds which invest in them. So so bond income, as I say, the, the key differentiator is when you make a loan to somebody, they agree to pay you interest. It's part of your deal. It's your contract. So as long as you've got, the companies have got that cash flow, it's not like they're making a decision. Whereas if you're a UK listed company and you're sitting around the board, you know, you say, well, we could pay the dividend. We physically got the money, but maybe we should keep it for a rainy day. That's a discretionary decision that you might make. But you've got to pay your bondholders. You've got to pay, you know, because you're contractually obligated to do so. You can't just say, do you know what? Maybe we won't pay our bond coupons this year. So that, that, I'm just trying to highlight a, fra- a difference yeah. between income that comes from bonds and income that mm-hmm. comes from dividends. And because of the dividend cuts we've seen, not just in the UK, but across the globe, that um, bonds have a different income criteria. So, yeah, there, there definitely is a difference, mm-hmm. not just in the asset class and the risk. Yeah, would you say they're a, a better option then for income investors at the moment? Again, I think it comes down to an individual circumstance. But as as lots of our customers and customers, you know, they 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 rely on the the income stream that they get to meet their everyday needs. So, if you if that that monthly or quarterly income that you get from your funds or your stocks and shares is part of your you know, sort of, you know, your spending ability, then I think, you know, you might want to give consideration to increasing your bond weighting. Um, I've been on your podcast several times and, you, you know, bonds have not been our favorite asset class for a number of years. And I think, you know, long-term equities could prove to be being cheap. But if you're an income investor and you need that income, then I think a tilt towards bonds is probably... Um, sensible at this stage. Okay. I suppose one thought that occurred was that um, if you have to income, presumably, you know, you're looking at higher yielding things, which could include high yield bonds, but a number of high yield bonds are actually issued by US oil companies. So is there not a risk there? Um, Because obviously oil companies, as we were saying earlier, um, you know, under tremendous pressure and tremendous problems. 
yeah, I mean, oil price at around the twenty to twenty-five dollar level is bad for the whole oil industry. It's not just the oil majors, but it's the uh, EMP stocks. You know, that companies looking for oil. Um, it's bad for oil services businesses. The energy sector is around ten percent of the high yield index. I don't have the exact figure to hand, but it's approximately ten percent. Good active managers will be able to navigate their way around those sectors. Uh, I spoke to a high yield fund manager actually only yesterday, and some companies that have got good balance sheets and can actually get can actually still make money at twenty and thirty dollar oil have been sold off with the entire sector. So there's one or two you know special stocks where actually the managers are, have been topping up uh, some of their oil positions, but you know, if you buy an index, you're getting. If you're buying a high yield ETF, you've got 10 percent in in energy. Mm. I'm not sure that at, at aggregate level that is the exposure you might want over the coming years until oil price, if it ever does, normalises. Okay, so I mean, in, in that case, which um, active funds uh, would you suggest for um, investors um, as we start bonding? Oh, we, we've we've got a, a, a whole sort of we've already touched on quite a number of different areas. So Shell and BP are big dominators of the UK income pot, but there are a number of multi-cap and small-cap income funds. Things like um, Gresham House multi-cap income and Montanaro income, their natural fishing ground is much more mid and smaller companies, where oil is much less of a... These are equity funds. The equity side. So if you you still want to try and hunt for equity income... If yeah. you're looking at corporate bonds, uh, Artemis Corporate Bond Fund, it is less than a year old. Uh, it's over 100 million pounds in size now, so it's a good size fund, and there's still, a, you know, that's being able to take um, some good position. But even that's only yielding approximately three percent. If you are looking more at high yield, uh, MAN GLG high yield opportunities, that's yielding nearly 10 percent. But as We've said before, anything yielding 10 clearly carries greater risk. And the risk is in that perception that a number of companies in the oil sector will go bust. You emphasised the importance of diversifying your um, income sources um, and obviously flagged the possibility of um, UK smaller companies' income or bond income. But what about... Um, global equity income funds or overseas regional equity income funds, I mean, are, are they as affected by things like oil price volatility or bank insurance dividend cuts? Or are they actually a better option than, say, UK equity income funds? Yeah, you know, that's like really, you know, hit, hit the nail right on the head. Uh, it is a particular position that UK stock market is has a big weighting to those large cap oils. And most of the major stock markets will have one or two big oil companies, including there's Exxon in, in the States, um, Total in France. But if you're going for a global fund, you, there, there are multiple sources of, of, of income. And there are lots of sectors globally, like healthcare, uh, certain bits of technology, not traditionally a high-yielding asset class, but uh, still tobaccos. Uh, you know, there's, there are large swathes of the of the marketplace globally that, that aren't having that dividend cut. So something like an M&G Global Dividend Fund, that fund is a fund that it, it focuses on in dividend growth within each company. And because that dividend growth strategy is at its core, 
they are much less likely to have big dividend cuts um, across across the board for something like that. Another alternative is you go global, but you could think of an investment trust, so something like Murray International Trust. The difference, as you know, on a fund to an investment trust is an investment trust can keep some income from one year to the next in its revenue reserve and use that reserve to pay out income when you know the fund's dividends and the underlying holdings make out. So investment trust, uh, to say something along the lines of a Murray International, which is a global equity income trust and has that added um, revenue reserve feature is something you could consider. Okay. Now, we've been talking a lot about the effects of volatile oil prices and the situation in on income investors. But just thinking about investors more broadly and perhaps people looking at growthy sectors, um, you know, what effects does oil price volatility have on emerging markets? Well, oil is a dominant factor, actually, and the price in emerging markets outside of Russia which is an emerging market and a big producer of oil, most emerging market uh, countries are importers of oil. So the likes of India, the oil price is a huge um, factor in in the outlook for, say, Indian equities because it's such a big importer of oil. It doesn't have any of its own oil. So a low oil price actually could be a big stimulus for emerging markets. So that is absolutely a factor uh, in, in an emerging market. If you X out the handful of emerging markets, for example, Russia, where actually they produce lots of it and hence low oil price is bad for that, their economies. Okay, so I mean, a mixed bag. Um, with that in mind, um, you know, what type of emerging markets funds do you go for to try and avoid the, the sort of bad spots and tap into the good spots? Yeah, so. Again, with active management, you know, managers have the ability to focus on areas that, that, that they that they prefer and potentially avoid um, some of those maybe oil-producing nations. Uh, a fund which maybe ticks a box as well because we're talking about income, there's a fund called Magna Emerging Markets Dividend. So that's a fund that focuses on emerging markets, but also yielding stocks. So that's a, a nice opportunity. Um, option for, for for people maybe looking for both yield and emerging markets to to to, to play this oil price theme that we've discussed uh, this afternoon. Okay, now we've talked about lots of different types of funds, but um, I suppose I haven't mentioned perhaps the most obvious one, and that's energy funds. How have energy funds been faring amid the oil price volatility? Another really good question. So. Energy funds are specialist funds and specialist vehicles, and broadly, you want higher energy prices to support the equities um, or, or, or investments in those streams. So, say so when you think of energy, you do think of obviously the big supranational oil companies like BP, Shell, Total, um, but then there are also companies that are actually much smaller that go out looking for oil, the E and P stocks. And then you have companies like Wood Group who support the oil industry. So, again, energy has a number of subsectors, but 
if you're in the camp, and lots of people are, that think that the oil price has structurally um, gone down because of the demand, certainly in the short term through lack of transport with the coronavirus, that actually energy funds you know, mightn't fare so well. Then the other school of thought is energy is pretty much at record lows, and we had the uh, crazy situation of negative energy prices on, a, on the futures contracts in America. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, but actually a lot of the bad news is priced in. You know, as as investors ourselves, we have discussed the energy sector, but just think with the virus at the moment and actually the price war going on in the oil sector between Russia and the Saudis, that that's a bit of a an extra red flag for us just at the moment. It, it could well be that these things are extremely cheap on a long-term view, but I just think with global growth, clearly going to slow substantially in the coming in the coming year we're basically avoiding oil prices or energy funds at the moment but you could see that if you took a longer term view that they would have an attraction something that, uh, like guinness guinness asset management um have an energy fund that i think would would be of interest to people who took that longer term view Okay. I mean, just thinking in terms of the, um, let's say, mixed bag, um, not great situation, um, is there any way that might be better to get some exposure to energy securities other than, you know, an energy fund? Um, So if you buy the UK stock market, you'll have exposure Mm -hmm. to energy. Lots of people will have UK stock market in their pension, whether they, you know, if you're in um, workplace pensions and stuff like that, you'll actually have exposure to to, to the energy sector via just broad um, broad ownership of UK equities um, or, or UK index. So a normal UK fund can invest in energy sector or not. If you're looking for funds that would have a higher exposure, you would then navigate towards the income sector, which is where we started. Mm. But... As we've seen only this week, Shell has announced a big cut in its dividend and the share price is down 20% approximately as a result. So, as I say, just at the moment with global growth and supply and demand, oil has really been hit with a double whammy. Is It was being in excess supply because of the disagreements between Russia and Saudi. And then because of lockdown across the globe, you've seen a huge um dent in the demand side. So it really has been the perfect storm for oil. And one you might see lasting throughout 2020. So yeah, I'm sure A, oil price looks cheap on a long-term basis and oil-related sectors have been hit. Uh, not sure it's something I would be advocating charging into at the moment, though, although I do accept they are cheap. Okay, thank you, Darius. Some really helpful tips on what to look out for, a bit oil market madness. And for more on how different types of funds will be affected by oil price volatility, see this week's big theme in the fund section. Falling markets and volatile asset prices can make you nervous. And not surprisingly, investors can make some very bad decisions in the heat of the moment. But in times of extreme market volatility, such as at the present, there are some key investment mistakes that you should really do your absolute best to avoid making. 
Now, Mary, you've been looking at this. So what would be an example of a dreadful investment mistake you really don't want to make at the moment? Hi, Leonora. Broadly speaking, we probably like to believe that we're rational decision makers. But as you say, decisions are often dominated by emotion. And one of the most prevalent mistakes you can make at the moment is falling into the trap of loss aversion bias. Because the theory goes that investors have a hypersensitivity to losses, meaning that they fear losses much more than they would welcome an equivalent gain. So this can lead to people panic selling when markets fall and moving moving money into cash until they calm down. Um, And this can be very damaging to portfolio performance over the longer term if you miss out on gains when the markets start to recover. I know we've seen an uptick in markets over the past month, but the economic outlook is still very uncertain um, and many stocks may still have further to fall. But recovery can happen very quickly and because of the compounding effect, sitting on the sidelines can lead to a substantial reduction in portfolio performance. Okay, so is selling the markets down something to avoid then? No, it's not always. You need to remain flexible and reassess the fundamentals of the stocks you hold to make sure that they're still an attractive investment prospect. This is an, an, another mistake linked to loss aversion bias is holding on to stocks for too long as people don't like to admit that they're wrong and think that they'll wait for the price to recover. Um, you need to remember that the market doesn't care what you paid for a stock and a recovery might not happen. There are unfortunately likely to be a number of companies that don't survive um, as the landscape changes as we come out of lockdown. Okay, so two things there. I mean, are there any other mistakes you should try to avoid in shopping markets? Yeah, so um, similar to the point I just made, a decision on whether to buy or sell a stock should not be made according to a previous value. Um, And this is known as anchoring bias. So, for example, you might look at a stock market such as the S&P 500 and consider now is a good time to buy it. um, Because despite an uptick in the last month, it's still significantly lower than its February high. But this previous anchor of prices in February becomes an expectation of potential future returns and that markets will return to such highs. But on further analysis, the S&P 500 is now far more expensive than when the pandemic began. Um, So valuations versus expected earnings are now expensive with a forward price to earnings ratio of about 22 times compared with the average tenure of around 16 times. Okay, I mean, it's, I have to say, it's tempting to see how you could, you know, be inclined to do that and, um, you know, kind of go along with lines. But what can you do to try and stop yourself, um, I suppose, falling into this anchoring bias? Yeah, so it comes back to looking at what the fundamentals um, are for a company and its future prospects at any given time. Do thorough research, look at what's going on in the world and the economic data coming out and make judgments based on what you think the future will look like. So for example, you shouldn't satisfy yourself by thinking that if the market has gone up 10%, then everything is fine. Instead, think about what impact the virus is having on company profits and dividends and general economic activity. Economic activity is a clearer signal about the future than short-term market movements. Okay, um, Darius, what investment mistakes in choppy markets would you urge investors to try and avoid? The biggest mistake I see is people trying to actually time markets. It is has proved for investors far more intelligent than me to be uh, an imperfect science. I, I totally take Mary's point that when your values are falling, 
that actually holding your nerve is sometimes difficult to do. And if you're a long-term saver, you need to reassert why it is you're saving into equities or, or, or bonds and think, yeah, is going into cash going to help you meet your goal? As, as Again, to Mary's, Mary's earlier point about doing damage to your portfolio, I would never advocate people trying to time in and out of the market. I think that's a common mistake that some investors make. If you have a strong view because of your outlook, again, as Mary has suggested, that things are going to get worse, by all means, put 10 or 20% of your portfolio in cash with the expectation of potentially buying it back at a better price. But don't put all of your portfolio in cash because you could be spectacularly wrong. Actually, people more likely to go to cash the more markets fall. Actually, the more markets fall, what you actually need to be doing is actually trying to invest more. They always say about the best time to buy equities or when it feels the worst time indeed to do so, the sort of fear and greed mentality. And when things are fearful, it, it, it is probably on a medium to long-term view almost exactly the time to buy. That's been proven in March 2009 at the, the end of the world and appeared nigh from the great financial crisis. But if you bought uh, equities at that stage, almost any equities, you certainly would have made very good returns over the following 10 to 12 years before this current crisis. So don't try and time markets. We're a big advocate of people saving on a monthly basis. That takes away any want to try and time markets. You know, you, whatever it is you're saving for in your pension or ISA or, or, or junior ISA, you know, just put away per month what you can afford to do. The other thing which this, these volatile markets always remind us is make sure that your investment time clock. So if you were hoping to have your investments mature in a 12 or a 20 month, 24 month um, time frame, then actually you should be looking to take less risk into that shorter time frame. Equities are long-term investments. We always say minimum five years. And if you've got more than five years to go, I think you just have to hold your nerve at times like this, believe that things will get better. Uh, and say it, it, it can be quite hard to do that because of the, some of the behavioral bias that Mary's touched on, particularly when you know the outlook is bleak. Another mistake that Mary highlighted was actually doggedly holding on to investment that's lost money, even if it doesn't have good prospects, aka a reason that you might want to sell something. But at the same time, you've both been saying, well, you know, don't, don't, don't panic and sell. So how do you actually work out whether you should continue to hold one of your funds or sell it for less than you bought it? Well, I think... It's, again, a really, really good and challenging point. But it's back to Mary's point about research. And, you know, is a fund or a stock still doing as you might expect it to, given we have a very different outlook on the in the early part of uh, May, late part of April, than we would have had even in January? So if, for instance, you owned an airline or a travel business or a restaurant company, you know, is the outlook the same? Now, if their share prices have already fallen 85, 90%, as some of them have, you might say, this is now pricing in no recovery in these companies ever. Well, there will be 
a new normal at some stage. People will fly again. People will go to restaurants again. And that's the not looking back is what price is it today? Do I still want to own it? And if you think, you know, you own stocks or funds where some of the sectors are challenged for a longer term, then, you know, reassessing, given the, 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 the current climate, not just volatility in markets, but the outlook for the global economy, the outlook for a return to some form of normality. And then, of course, there's the science all around um, potential vaccines and how quick that might improve things in the world. And just on the sort of global look, the amount of money being pumped into the system by governments globally in the last two months is equivalent to all the QE done in the previous 10 years. So we've had huge stimulus, and that actually can and has over the last month proved to be a very strong supporter for equity markets with the FTSE going from around 5,000 to around 6,000, although it has been a negative day. The last couple of days have been more negative again. Okay, thank you, Darius. And see this week's money section for other investment mistakes to avoid in choppy markets. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see Investors Chronicle over website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more on how oil price volatility affects different assets and funds which look better placed to ride through this turbulence. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and have a good weekend. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>